podcast. And on this Christmas Eve special, I have the privilege and pleasure of speaking with Brian Lax and Joe Boscovich of Old West Capital. We're going to chat about their investment process, and specifically, we're going to dive into the uranium case and and the bull thesis for uranium, which Brian is um, not the self-proclaimed guru of uranium but we're going to call him that for the point of this podcast so guys thanks so much for joining us i know it's christmas eve you guys probably have better things to do with your time so i really appreciate it yeah thanks for having us hey brandon so let's kind of get a little bit of background information on you guys Uh, i know i've spoken to joe so a little bit of background is joe and i have been going back and forth on twitter for a while and it's it's actually funny i was under the pseudonym back when i worked at my old investment shop i was under the pseudonym market plunger and so joe and i actually had a bunch of discourse over that pseudonym and in corresponding with Thomas Bachrock, who I did a podcast with on PFH Capital, I got looped into that email and got reintroduced to Joe as my actual name, Brandon. And so it was just kind of funny that, um, you know, we, we, we now know each other on a first name basis, but I don't know much about you, Brian. So why don't you start with uh, kind of your background and how you got into investing? Yeah, I um, uh, grew up in California, went to USC. I was um majored in, in business and finance, got an MBA as well, did the CFA route, and then started working at a, a, a buy-side firm <clears throat> here in LA, uh, covering mainly oil and gas uh, exploration and production, but also you know other, other energy-related issues, so coal and um, uranium was one of them. We actually, uh, one of the firms we were related with had a pretty significant position in, in one of the big uranium names, so got exposure that way, you know, natural gas, refining, basically across the board. So when I joined here a few years ago, um, we we had a lot of the same exposure, or at least Old West had a lot of the same things they were looking at because, you know, this was 2016, end of 2016. Um, the, the market had already been in a, in a bull phase for a good five or six years, and a lot of the things that hadn't participated were the energy, the commodity names, uh, precious metals, so there was a really nice synergy there between you know the experience that I had and what the the names that they were they were focusing on at the time, and so um, that's when I joined. Uh, we started looking at the, at the uranium idea around then. Um, you know, we'll talk about it a little later, but uh, that was actually my first idea when I joined here, um, and it's it's kind of grown from there. And you know, I, it's more of a generalist role here because we're a, we're a small shop, so I look at a lot of different places, but. We still sort of focus on certain areas. You know, Joe does a lot of work in the media space, but um, you know, we do have a lot of exposure to to commodities and energy. Um, well, parts of energy. Um, so, uh, but that that kind of brings us to today, where you know now we have a new fund that's that's focusing on those areas. So, what drew you to value investing, Brian, in particular? Did you flirt with any other styles, or it was this kind of the uh, Warren Buffett mantra, where it's you know once it clicks, it clicks? Well, yeah. Personally, I think all investing is value investing. I mean, you're you're trying to buy something for less than it's worth. Um, and at least for me, I'm trying to take that philosophy to the extreme. How do we find something that trades at a very big discount to to what it's worth? And you know, there's there's certain areas that that present those opportunities. I think you know things that are out of favor, certain sectors maybe that are that are deeply cyclical, but you know, the, I mean, the, the, the process is the same for a lot. It's uh, what is this thing worth? And then what is it trading for? And what is that gap? What is that margin of safety? And then where do I look to find the biggest gap? And, 
it's tough because I think in a bull market, a lot of people are just trying to, you know, buy high and sell higher and things have already run and they're, they're justifying these valuations that may appear stretch from a historical uh, level. But, you know, for us, it's let's find these areas where maybe the, maybe the valuations haven't kept up or maybe they should be much higher and we see an opportunity to buy them at a very deep discount and then to follow that is what is the catalyst that's going to cause that gap to close because it's not enough to say hey uh, I bought this great cheap value stock and then it just sits there for five years because no one cares about it so it's you know where are the value names where is that big divergence of of value and price and then what's going to cause that gap to close hopefully over a short period of time i think that's what drew us to the uranium area specifically was that we think that not only does that big gap exist but there are catalysts that are going to cause it to cause that gap to close and and that's where we we make our money and that's really the beauty of a generalist aspect you know you're not you're not this sector or industry specific like you're not just uranium but being a generalist and having these value investing principles led you to these corners of the market where you see the greatest intrinsic value to market price discrepancy which just happens to be uranium um now Joe, do you want to give us some background on Old West Investment Management, how you got started? I know you partnered with your dad. Um, you know, what was what was it like starting the firm and 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 kind of take us through the early days there? Yeah. So, so I guess, you know, first off, um, and, and I, I, I tell everybody this, but, you know, when you look at the genesis of of our process in terms of why why do we, you know, follow people at the company and, and focus on owner managers, but um, you know, my dad, prior to entering the investment management business, he worked in a in a family um, farming and food processing business. And uh, so my, my family's business, Boscovich Farms, at that time, they were the largest client uh, of a small regional Southern California bank called Santa Clarita National Bank. And my dad was in his late 20s and the chairman of that bank thought it would be a good idea to have board representation from from my family's business. So in his late 20s, uh, the chairman of that bank approached my dad and asked him if he would join the board of directors, um, which my dad did and felt that that was a great honor for him at, at such a young age. And, um, you know, keep in mind, this is right the day before, you know, computers and, and information at your fingertips. So every quarterly board meeting, uh, there would be a, a board book. And there was always a page of that board book dedicated to stock transactions during the prior quarter. And my dad, um, quarter after quarter after quarter, always noticed that the only transactions um, in that bank, it was always the, the chairman of the bank buying stock from you know, whoever he could whenever that stock came available. It, it, it was a public bank, but it, it was very small and thinly traded. Um, so after several quarters of, of seeing this, this ferocious buying by the chairman of the bank, my dad walked in his office and asked if he could buy stock alongside of him, and, and he did. And, and I think that was just using common sense. And fast forward several years, Santa Clarita National Bank sold the first Pacific Bank, which then later got acquired by Bank of America. And my dad made a you know, a decent amount of money for someone in his late 20s, early 30s. But 
you know, I think the lesson learned was that no matter how much you think you know about a company, no matter how sound your analysis is, you probably don't know as much as the people running that company. So, so, you know, that I, I believe is very ingrained in the DNA of our, in the DNA of our company. And it's a, you know, a big part of what we do, but, you know, basically the, the kind of the linchpin of our process would be identifying, identifying smart owner managers of companies with track records of success and then closely following their investment activities, um, you know, over time. So, um, you know, essentially we, we just want to be invested in companies where management has more to gain or lose through their ownership than they do through their compensation. So, you know, I always say that names could come into our focus in a number of ways and really in any way, but, you know, oftentimes we source our ideas through SEC form four filings, 13D filings, 13G filings. Um, we kind of scour the 13F filings of other managers that we have a high regard for and, and we respect their process. But, but you, you know, really simply, if a CEO is going to write a check for $5 million buying stock with his own after-tax capital, it doesn't mean we're going to follow him into that idea. But it, it does mean that we should maybe, you know, dig in. So typically the first place we would start is the proxy statement. And I kind of, I kind of call it the proxy test, um, but you know, within 30 minutes of really glancing at the proxy, uh, not 90% of companies just kind of get tossed in the trash can and and we move on, um, you know. And then from there, we're you know we're value investors and don't want to you know overpay for assets, but we're also you know very cognizant of the fact that cheap assets are usually cheap for a reason. So you know, we try to identify some sort of you know harder saft hard or soft catalyst that may, uh, you know, unlock that value, you know, in the near, in the near future. Cause if, if you're, if you're not able to identify those, those catalysts, um, you know, cheap stocks usually get cheaper. So, but, um, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, a quick summary that that's how we identify names. You mentioned within the proxy statement, as you said, the proxy test and within the first 30 minutes, you can, determine whether or not this is something that you want to dig further into or or something that you want to scrap into the too hard or I just not interested pile. What are some of those things that that catch your eye, red flags in particular, that make you throw that idea away or just say this is too hard? I mean, obviously, insider ownership, if the owner owns zero stock, I think that's kind of just a given. But is but but are there any intricacies that that maybe you look for that you don't think other investors might notice or might take the time to do? Yeah, well, you know, personally for me, and I know, you know, Brian feels the same way, but but not only do I want to see management being a, a significant shareholder, but, you know, more often than not, what would really interest me, really interest me is if, you know, management was the largest shareholder, um, you know, and, and, and then I think we, we closely scrutinize compensation and, you know, we don't have a problem with high pay, but we want it to be smart pay and we want it to be tied to you know, metrics that make sense and are, are shareholder friendly. So, you know, is compensation tied to growth and revenue or is it tied to, you know, return on invested capital? Um, so, you know, like I would say, high ownership and, and not low compensation, but smart compensation and shareholder friendly compensation. And, um, you know, I, I say 90% of the companies just kind of get tossed in the trash can after a half an hour because the vast majority of public companies um, you know, management would not, would not fit that criteria. 
Right, right. Now, I was talking to Chris Mayer and my friend Alex Jones about this kind of topic yesterday in terms mm-hmm. of insider ownership or specifically founder-led companies. And one of the rebuttals that we were tossing back and forth was basically one of the risks if you invest in a founder-led owner that owns a majority of the stock is that once that owner, you know, if that owner, you know, goes or if they leave or, you know, God forbid they die, it's, you know, that that major part of your thesis, that crux of your thesis goes with it. And so is there anything that you, you know, any any sort of, uh, you know, redundancies that you have in your process where it's like, you know, we like insider ownership, but we don't like 70% ownership or we don't like everything controlled by one person. We like a management team that controls that just to kind of mitigate those certain risks. Yeah, well, I'd say it's a case by case basis. Um, you know, if you were, you know, not going to invest in any companies that that, that were controlled by, um, you know, an individual with, with super voting stock, I, you know, you'd sit here and you would have never owned any of the John Malone companies and um, you would have missed a lot of, you know, great opportunities. So I would say it's, uh, you know, a case by case basis, but, you know, and then in terms of, you know, longevity of management or being highly, you know, independent on one person, I remember, you know, several years ago, I was discussing um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway with someone, and you know, you know, and at the time, I think, you know, Warren Buffett was probably seventy-five years old, and and it was, um, you, you know, thrown out there. The well, you know, he's seventy-five, he's getting old. You know, maybe we don't want to, you know, have that that key businessman risk. Well, you know, look what you've lost over the last fifteen years. Right, um, he's been just as sharp as he was fifteen years ago. So. Um, you know, but, but the one thing that I would add, uh, you know, so when we do see significant ownership, when we do see management buying a lot of stock, I, w- I would say, you know, the first thing we would ask ourselves from there is, is why, you know, why does this management's ownership or why does that insider, you know, acquisition matter? And, and I'm just like a, a quick example would be, um, uh, you know, a big company that we bought a, a while ago and that ha- it's been a great investment for us. And I think a lot of people, sometimes you, you know, in the large cap world, how can you, you know, buy a stock and, and do really well and you should look in the small cap space. And, you know, we agree with that, but we bought Abbott labs, um, you know, four years ago at 40 bucks and it's an $85 stock today. And yep. this was in July of 2016. And we're just going through the sec filings and we see where Miles White, the the chairman and CEO of the company, he writes a check buying thirty one million dollars worth of stock, and then a couple of weeks later, he buys another check, buy, writes another check buying fifteen million dollars worth of stock in the company. So you wow. see that, and your eyes kind of pop out of your head. But then I would say the first thing is, why do we care that you know who is Miles White, and why do we even care that he's writing this check? And as you dig in, um, you know what what he's done you know, at that company is incredible. He's been there for, you know, I think 15, 17 years. And uh, if you look at the value added, um, you know, that shareholders have received from his leadership, uh, you know, several years ago, if you recall, he spun off um, it, uh, Abbott's biopharma business, AbbVie. And, you know, today AbbVie has a $100 billion market cap on its own. And then you combine the two companies, it's over a $200 million market cap today. Um, you know, so what a great capital allocator has he been? So, so I would say, you know, does management own stock? 
and why should we care and look at their capital allocation, you know, track record. So probably a, you know, great example today and a very evident part of our portfolio. It's probably a, you know, 12 to 15 percent waiting all in would be would be um, the, the, the Howard Jonas IDT companies. Um, so uh, Howard Jonas um, started a company called IDT Corporation in 1990, and um, it, its original business, uh, they were in the international telecom business and and um, like international calling cards. And he did a great job with that business. But in the early you know 2000s, he talked about how you know, it's just a commodity and it's a shrinking, you know, the international minutes business is under great pressure from, you know, free providers like Skype and VoIP yeah. and it's a shrinking ice cube. And he's talked about this for a long time, but, it, but, but it generates a lot of cash. So for the last 25 years, Howard has, you know, effectively harvested cash from that shrinking telecom business. And he's redeployed that cash into a basket of growth initiatives and sometimes he has sold those growth initiatives, um, but more often than not, he has spun those businesses off in a, to separate companies. So just in the last decade, you know, had you invested in IDT Corporation in January of 2010, um, Howard has spun off five different businesses. And had you been an investor in 2010 and kept each of those spins, he has generated 50% annualized returns for shareholders versus 10% for the S&P 500. So it's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, not, it's not bad. Right. So I'd say he has an amazing capital um, allocation track record and not that we should blindly follow him, but I would suggest that anything, you know, Howard Jonas does or has his, you know, hands involved in, um, you know, uh, an opportunistic investor should, should be playing, paying very close attention. Um, yeah, the, probably the, the, the most popular of, of his spins and many of will recognize the story, but in, you know, in 2001, so, so Howard's been a great visionary. He's been a great visionary. What's going to be, you know, the big thing tomorrow. So, you know, in 2001, he spent $50 million buying a kind of a basket of spectrum assets, um, from Windstar Communications out of bankruptcy. Um, he spun those spectrum assets off into a, into a separate company called Straight Path Communications in 2013. And last year, he sold Straight Path to Verizon for $3.1 billion, and he owned 20% of the company. So, you know, I would say, um, you know, clearly he has a, a nose for value, but I would also mention, and, and, and the great capital allocators, you know, are good at this would be, would be patient you know, patience and realizing when you, when you have something good, keep in mind that he, he bought those assets in 2001, didn't spin them off until more than a decade later. So, um, you know, I, I, I think you need, you need patience, but, um, uh, so, so he's someone, you know, like I said, we monitor closely. He has five different spins and, and the parent company, um, are all publicly traded right now. We own them all. So like I said, collectively, we have about a 15% position and, in, in his companies, um, that'd be Raphael Holdings, IDW Media, Zedge, IDT Corporation, and Genie. We own them all. I think they're all phenomenal opportunities. The the, the biz, biggest exposure, though, would be um, a company called Raphael Holdings. Um, uh, Howard, um, it was, so, so Raphael Holdings, it's a it's a biotech asset. Um, but, you know, but once again, he, he he's not a biotech guy, but but he's a 
you know, a, a visionary and he has the capital and he's very opportunistic. So back in 2012, he was introduced to someone uh, in the management team at Raphael Pharma. And he was, um, you know, enamored with their science, what they were doing. You know, Howard was pre-med in college, so he's kind of always had a natural you know, inclination towards that space, um, but was a big fan of what they were building. And in 2012, um, you know, he, he expressed interest and said, hey, look, I have the capacity. I'd love to you know, help you guys out as a board member if, if you'd want. And, and so he joined the board. And fast forward a year, the company um, ne- needed a, a, a more liquidity. You know, I always say that, you know, tech, there's a lot of great tech and biotech out there, but they often fall short of the you know, finish line and, and run out of capital. So, you know, Howard uh, gave the company a capital injection in 2013 in exchange for a minority stake in that business, a 56 per, or I'm sorry, a majority stake. So 56 uh, percent majority stake in Raphael Pharma, and he owned that under the IDT corporate umbrella. And then um, last year, um, as the company progressed through clinical trials, and um, it's, it, it seemed what they had was, you know, very very promising. He spun out their fifty six percent stake in Raphael Pharma, a majority stake in another biotech asset, and then uh, IDT Corporation's headquarters. Um, and, and if you look at the, you know, the balance sheet, the carrying value of the, the real estate in the buildings, about a hundred million. So he spun this out with a hundred million in real estate, about 50 million in cash and the biotech. And, you know, at the time of the spin, um, I think the market cap was about a hundred million. And, and like I said, that the, in, in just cash and real estate, they had 150 million, um, just in hard assets. So, you know, at wow. the time you were buying it at a discount to their stake in biotech and it's, it's been a great investment for us and it's grown into our largest position, but um, I think they have something really special there. They're in phase three trials for, for two different uh, cancer types. The, the, the most um, promising one would be a, a phase three trial for stage four pancreatic cancer, which, you know, as you may know, is a, is a death sentence. And then, yeah, in phase one trials, they dosed 18 patients with their lead compound, CPI 613. And out of those 18 patients, they had three complete remissions, um, wow. which which is, you know, statistically un- unheard of. And and they actually rung the bell on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange late last year. And, and you could go online and see their presentation. But Howard Jonas was in the middle and he was flanked on both sides by two of the, you know, the pancreatic cancer survivors, which... You know, awesome. who have been big advocates for the company. So, so, so once again, you know, I don't know that we would necessarily be involved in any of these names um, if it if, if it wasn't for Howard Jonas, you know, being who we think is a is a great owner manager. But, but it it, it kind of helps you start, you know, putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And 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 I would say, you know, a great deal of our portfolio are in companies that you know are run by people such as Howard, people like John Malone. And, um, you know, I think over the long term, it's going to it's going to be a great thing for 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 our clients. Do you think in just kind of looking at it, maybe on a philosophical level, that this type of business model for we'll call them innovators or really effective yeah. capital allocators. Do you think this type of business model 
where you just buy up some businesses and then you spin them out and you just keep spinning out these businesses that are cash cre- or you know cash generative. Do you think that's the optimal business model for such allocators? And then, you know, as a as a second part, would that be the ideal type of company that you would want to invest in if you had, you know, if you had to choose, would you say I would want to invest in this type of structure where it's a, you know, a conglomerate of businesses that eventually get spun out and, you know, just are really highly accretive. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I don't, first of all, I don't think there are, are, you know, many businesses like that. And I, you know, other than someone like John Malone, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know that I could think of, you know, another kind of serial spinoff guy other than Howard Jonas that, that I, you know, that I've ever really followed. And, and, and no, I, I don't think it's the ideal complex for, for an owner manager. And actually, if you asked Howard Jonas, and he said this in interviews, he, he was interviewed a, a couple of years ago. And the first question was, what, or, or maybe, you know, one of the later questions in the interview actually was, what, what's been your, biz- your biggest mistake in business? And he said, going public. Um, so yeah, so I don't think it's the ideal structure and, and, you know, for us, I think we're just very, well, first, I, I think we've been very fortunate to identify him and, you know, develop a relationship with him and, um, the, the managers and the several different spinoffs. Um, but you, you know, that was kind of his, his MO early on and he started spinning off businesses and I, I, I just don't. Um, it's pretty rare to, to find, to find someone like that. So, um, you know, other than, other than Howard and and John Malone, we really don't have any companies like that in the portfolio. It just so happens that, you know, we probably, like I said, we own a a 15% stake in Howard Jonas companies and we probably have another, you know, six or 7% stake in John Malone companies. So like I said, 22% of our portfolios and businesses like that, but Mm. But um, like I said, there's really no one else that that, um, you know, has done that, that that were, you know, is even on our radar screen necessarily. So and I want to pivot a little bit into your uh, portfolio construction, kind of overall investment investment guidelines. So once you, you know, go through these filings, once you find companies that have incentivized management systems, um, aligned compensation what are some other key characteristics you look for, whether that's low debt levels, um, you know, attractive gross margins? What are what are some things that make it, you know, a really a really high conviction idea? Yeah, well, it's, it's funny you mentioned lo- low debt levels. I actually, you know, as far as the Howard Jonas companies are concerned, one of the things that attracts me to those businesses the most is they're um, really n- none of the companies have any debt. And uh you know, it's interesting. Think back to the parent company, IDT Corporation. Well, in in the early two thousands, I mean, if you recall, all of the telecom companies went bust, and the only reason IDT didn't is because they didn't have any debt. And actually, Winstar Communications, which Howard bought the the Spectrum assets from, uh, in, interestingly enough, uh, you know, in the late nineties, two thousand, Winstar was I think ten times the size of IDT Corporation. And tried to buy and try to buy the much smaller IDT. Well, fast forward a year, because IDT had no debt, WinStar was over leveraged. Um, IDT ended up buying WinStar out of bankruptcy, or or at least the Spectrum assets out of bankruptcy. So yeah, I, I, I would say we we look for companies without a lot of debt. 
you know, Brian could talk to this more with uranium, but I think on the commodity side, it probably applies even more so um, because when, when, you know, companies are suppressed or, or industries are in, uh, you know, downturns, um, you just want to make sure that, that the company has the ability to, 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 to make it to the other side. And, and right. oftentimes that, that debt profile would, would determine that. Yeah. And I, I think just to add to that, um, you know, the identifying these individuals or the companies is, is just a starting point. Um, you know, after, after we do that, you know, if, if it does pass the proxy test, then it's really a traditional value uh, analysis of, uh, you know, are, are these good companies? Um, and so we look at all the traditional metrics uh, in, in, in formulating our estimate of what the intrinsic value is. Uh, debt, debt is a big one. And, you know, especially for, for junior resource companies who maybe don't have revenue yet, maybe they're pre, pre-production, uh, it's it's very important to look at their their financial wherewithal to to bridge the gap into when they when they do start generating cash flows and so that would be a big one and then you know it, it varies sector by sector I'm sure uh, your listeners have their own metrics they look at for each industry but really I think the point we're trying to get across is we're not just you know oh we see the insider ownership and we automatically buy it's just a starting point that we think right. is, is unique and so. Um, you know, once we've identified these potential candidates, then we'll start more of a traditional valuation analysis. When do you guys determine um, to get out of a position? Do you guys use any sort of, um, you know, price metrics, whether it hits intrinsic value and, 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 and you guys get out? Or is it more of as long as the business keeps performing and the intrinsic value grows, we're just going to let it grow? And do you trim off positions to keep some sort of portfolio construction in place? I think the, yeah, well, I think the latter probably, um, you know, we we'll let them go if they're working. Uh, you know, I think we do have our our estimates of intrinsic value. And as they start to approach them, uh, usually the positions will get bigger uh, and then potentially we'll either trim them back into a reasonable size or or look to exit. But a lot of times, you know, as time goes by and these companies grow into what your estimate of intrinsic value is, well, the their outlook might also increase. And so the intrinsic value now has, has increased as well. And so our view is very similar to some of these Buffett-like managers that say, hey, if, if you know, give these people the money and, and let them do what they're doing. And Joe, maybe you can add to that, is that you know, we own, we've owned some companies for years in the portfolio because you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I mean, these guys continue to create value and, and grow their, their, their enterprise. And if it still trades at a reasonable valuation, we think there's no reason to get rid of it. Yeah. When I, and I was laughing when, when you asked that question, because I, I mean, if you look back at our, you know, 10 year history, you know, what have been our biggest mistakes? Um, and I would say our biggest mistakes have probably been adding to our losers too, too often and cutting our winners too often. So, so yeah, I mean, to, to Brian's point, I mean, we, we've had some names that our, our performance would probably be a lot better had we um, let some of our winners, you know, run more and, and maybe didn't have such a, such a you know set price target in our mind and, and and you know let that kind of be more of a fluid price target yeah it's funny joe says that because i think one of our, our really successful names over the last couple of years has been this company Enphase, and i think our cost basis is around a dollar a dollar ten 
and the stock I think hit twenty seven dollars today. And you know, wow. <laughs> the irony is that uh, you know the I get a criticism. You know, why why were we trimming this thing? So I think you know it's it's difficult when you have stocks. I, I guess that goes with the you know with this idea of trying to find these really big discounts from intrinsic value. Is a lot yep. of times you don't necessarily you know it's a, it's a rough estimate of what that intrinsic value is. And as these things run a lot. You think, hey, wow! I mean, it's gone up two or three times. I mean, you know, should we should we take some money off the table? How much higher can it go? But you know, as, as these things work, the businesses grow as well, and it's easy to think that, hey, let's let's ring the register and get out. But if the business fundamentals are still growing, sometimes you just gotta let let them go. And there are cases where you can round trip it. I know a lot of hedge fund managers got hurt in Valiant a few years ago where yep. you know, it, ran, it ran up incredibly and, and, and they kept it and they just happened to be outsized positions in the portfolio, but then it came all the way back down. So there is a little bit of a balance you have to strike. Um, you know, and in hindsight, it's really easy to say, hey, we should have let this thing run because it went up 20 times. But you never know in the moment when the thing has got, you know, multiplied a few times and, and all of a sudden you're not sure it's closer to your intrinsic value, but there's still potentially some upside. So I think there has there's a balance that's right. We still did extremely well in the name, obviously, but mm. uh, you know, had we kept the original weighting, I mean, man, it'd be the value of the whole the whole fund today. So <laughs> yeah, wow. When it comes to when it comes to cutting your losses, a lot of investors, you know, they you know you see it all the time. I mean, Ian Castle tweets about it all the time. Is 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 cutting your cutting your losses quickly. When do you guys decide that? Is it more of is is it is it a price based, like almost using like like looking at charts, like seeing new lows, and you say, okay, you know, Michael Burry did something similar. You said if I, if I if I buy a stock and it hits new lows, I'll get out and I'll just look for a better entry. Or is it is it is it all thesis driven? Where if the thesis breaks, then I get out. What's 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 the strategy? I think, there? I think that's right. I, I think it's it's very thesis driven. We don't use stop losses. We don't use arbitrary down limits like fifteen or twenty percent down. Mm -hmm. We say, look, what is this thing worth in our best opinion, and what is it trading for right now? And if it, you know, I use the example that if we think a stock has two or three times upside. Uh, and it goes down 50%, well, now it has four to six times upside. And so unless something has changed in the thesis, then, you know, we'll hold. And, and, and to Joe's point, maybe that's to our detriment. You know, we've held things for a long time. But the example I mentioned earlier, the one that's up 20 or 30 times, I think we were originally down 40 or 50% on it over the first couple of quarters because, you know, we, mm -hmm. we didn't catch the ultimate bottom. And I think that's a theme that we notice uh, constantly, and not really constantly, but frequently, is that you don't always catch the bottom on these things. If you're looking for the really big upside for these really big price divergences from value, sometimes you're not going to nail it perfectly and you may have to wait through some pain. Right. Not everyone wants to do that. I think that's a reason a lot of these opportunities exist is people are looking for easier easier ways to make money. And so for, for deep value investors, if we're willing to say, hey, we believe in this thesis, it might take some time and we might be a little bit early, but we'll still stick with it. And that's another reason why you don't just jam it all in in the in the first in the, you know on the first day. You maybe kind of add to the position over time as as the as the thesis fleshes out. But you know, so I think um, it's uh, it's tough. We don't. We, I, I wouldn't say that we necessarily will sell something because it's down. But if some if we buy something and it goes down thirty percent over the next few months, we'll say, hey, were we wrong? I, I guess it really forces you to look at the thesis and say. Are we yeah. missing something or are we right. just early on this? And so that's, I think, how we look at it. 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I completely agree. And actually, I like, I like the point that you mentioned where you know you, you don't buy, or at least in some instances, you don't buy your entire position all at once. And I think that helps in terms of being able to ride down. You know, you buy it at twenty dollars, it drops to ten. If you don't have a full position at that point, it's way easier from a mental standpoint to then look at that unbiased and say, okay, maybe I can keep buying more because I didn't get a biggest you know i didn't i didn't establish a full position because my my worst performing position for you know at the end of 2018 into 2019 was a stock that i bought too much of at the beginning and saw it drop and i couldn't get myself to add to it because it was already a large position yeah and i I think there are famous stories i mean especially in the uranium space uh paladin is is a great example that people use where one of the famous investors he bought in his cost basis was it was 10 cents uh it fell all the way to a to a penny so 90 percent drawdown uh he held and it went up to ten dollars so a, a thousand bagger so i think that you know that's an extreme example but I, I really just emphasizes the point that have a thesis have an intrinsic value you know hey, look maybe maybe there is news that comes out that might that might shade that one way or the other and so it, it, it could deserve to have given up a little bit but it, but we're really looking for these situations that have significant upside versus the downside these asymmetric type uh, situations because you know we're we're human right I, I think if 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 your best estimate of a uh, of a stock's worth is only 10% above where it's currently trading. I mean, is that really a good investment idea or 20% even because I mean, that's, that's well within the margin of error of your assumptions. And so right. we're really looking for these big <laughs> divergences because that's the margin of safety. So if we're, if we're off a little bit, well, okay, well maybe it, you know, only went up one times versus two times, something like that. And that, Hey, that's, we're, we're fine with that. But really um, we're not looking for these very narrow, margins because you know that that could just be a we could have faulty assumptions and that all goes away yeah it goes back to monish pabrai's of you know it's highly uncertain but that uncertainty is very positive in the sense of you don't know how much you can make on the upside but you know that it's kind of a heads i win tails i don't lose much yeah so if you you know find yourself in those situations and, and and one of those situations which you know you guys are very bullish on um this kind of very big um you know, theme that 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 you guys are 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 talking about is uranium, and so much so that I believe you guys created a new fund specifically for uranium. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, about a year ago. Yeah. yeah so we, take us. Go ahead, Joe. Well, yeah. Well, a little background. So, you know, Brian's done some great work in this space, and yeah, I think we were probably bumping up against a twenty percent weighting in in a basket of uranium miners in our in our core fund. You know, and, and, and you sit there and, you know, we have a different profile of clients, but, you know, some of our clients have their, their life, their life's net worth here. And so is it really prudent to have more than a 20% weighting in uranium for that client? Probably not, but we feel it's one of the best opportunities we've ever come across. So, so, you know, Brian had this idea to, to launch this kind of dedicated fund uh a year ago and um it's exciting so anyways yeah brian take us take us through um for those that are completely new to the uranium idea like if they haven't seen your interview with uh bobby Kraft, because i i think y'all talked about this as well but take us kind of kind of give us the elevator pitch on uranium if that's even possible i mean i know it's 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 a major theme and we'll dive deeper but just what's the elevator pitch 
I mean, the elevator pitches, it's a commodity where the demand is much greater than supply uh, and the price is too low to bring new supply on. And so the price is going to have to rise to give an incentive for producers to produce more uh, to match the demand that's out there, which is which is steady and growing. And so I think it's a really simple thesis at, at its core. Um, and yet the industry itself is is incredibly complex. It's opaque. It's hard to get good information about it, but we think that's one of the reasons why the opportunity exists is not a lot of people have spent the time to do the work on the industry and all its various uh, various portions. So, um, you know, we, we came up with this idea, maybe not came up with it, but it, it was something that I had been familiar with from my last role because getting exposure to, to the sector and then um, it's been a long downturn. So it, it fits into that area of, where are these where are these big value divergences created a lot of time it's in a sector that's undergone some sort of upheaval so whether it was fertilizer in 2013 when the cartel broke and and you know the, that that sector crashed out or and, and this one it was you know the the incident in japan that happened in 2011 where japan decided to take all of their reactors offline as a safety precaution that really threw a, a fairly balanced market into oversupply because a big chunk of demand went away. And so you've had for the last eight years this oversupply narrative of, you know, there's too much production, um, the demand is not there, there's a lot of backlash against it in the developing world. People generally don't like nuclear. Um, and so uh, with that as a backdrop, you had prices that, that dropped from 2011 that were around $70 a pound all the way to late 16, they got, um, in 2016, they got below $20 a pound. And that's well below the average cost of production worldwide. And so what happened was with most of the producers underwater, you had significant supply cutbacks. And, you know, it, it lasted longer than, than people expected because a lot of the producers were, had a lifeline in terms of the contracts that they had signed in the past that were at high, contract, at high prices. When those started to roll off, they, they just they couldn't make a buck selling at the prevailing price. And so a lot of them right. went away. There were probably 500 companies uh, or so, you know, several hundred companies 10 years ago. Now there's maybe only a few dozen left. And so that's kind of the the the, the hunting ground that we that we find pr pretty, um, pretty right. When you made the pitch to prospective investors for this uranium fund, were you well received or did you did you come across a lot of healthy skepticism or did people buy in right away? A, l a little bit of both. I think it would lean towards well received. I mean, it's been it's been pretty successful. The assets have gone up about you know over over ten times since we've launched. Um, but I think one of the things is if you compare it to the general market, there is a, this general sense, in my opinion, of uh, investor, I, don't, I wouldn't call it fatigue, but maybe skepticism or concern that this 10-year bull market can just continue going up 30% a year forever. And so I think a lot of investors are, are looking for things that are uncorrelated, saying, hey, I'm a little concerned. You know, I have the bulk of my money in, in this market. It's doing very well. But a lot of times when things are going very well, people start to get a little nervous. Is this, are the good times going to last forever? And so- right. For us, when we came came along with this idea and said, "Look, it's it's fairly uncorrelated. It's a supply-demand imbalance that we think has to remedy itself over the next few years, regardless of what's going on with the Fang stocks or you know some of these other other stuff, that momentum that's driving the market." They said, "Hey, that that makes a lot of sense." And you know, there were people that were in our existing funds who liked the idea. We'd been talking about it for a few years before 
um, we launched this fund. And you know, as our as our position sizes grew and our and our conviction in the thesis grew, people said, "Hey, you know, we like this idea." But like Joe mentioned, that we didn't think it was prudent to have a general diversified fund that had so much money into a sector that was very small and illiquid. Right. Um, and so we decided this this fund makes sense. And we have a number of clients in our other funds that have come over here because they do like this theme and they wanted more um, concentrated exposure to it. So this fund is basically like a standard private equity structure in the in the sense of there's a fixed timeline where this is going to work in terms of the runway between uranium's current prices and current values and what you know the correct value given you know status quo supply and demand should be and you mentioned that a little bit earlier in terms of a few years what's that runway is it 3 years is it is it is it 10 years well, we, we think it probably, given the given the the deficit that exists today and the fact that it grows in terms of the uncovered requirements of the utilities, meaning that they need to contract this material and that's going to force the price discovery, we think it takes place over the next few years. It's not a, a private equity structure per se where, hey, uh, you know, at the end of three years, it, it, it gets dissolved. In fact, okay. you know, we didn't even name, it's not, it's not. Uh, a uranium fund it just happens to have a lot of uranium and it's it's called an opportunity oh, okay. it's just it's an opportunity okay. fund Got it. uh the idea is these types of themes where we see very big asymmetric risk reward where you know the upside is you know multiples of the downside those are the themes that we're looking for and so you know once this plays out which we think will be in the next couple of years uh we'll very likely move to whatever we see as, as the next as the next big opportunity you know, maybe there are maybe there are some investors that say, hey, we were only there for the uranium and, you know, maybe they'll get, they'll listen to what we think is the next idea. But then they of might course. say, hey, you know, thanks a lot. We did very well. So, you know, we we purposely did that. There are some other funds out there that are that are uranium specific. It's in their name and they may do the same. They may just shut down and, and give all the money back. Mm -hmm. We think, though, that the we're not necessarily selling the, the uranium. It's it's the thought process that led us to that area. Like you mentioned, earlier. I would like that. I like you know, that. it's it's the it, this is just we're looking for these big opportunities, these big ideas where there's some structural dislocation and a catalyst that's going to cause this large gap between value and price to close. Right now, we just think uranium is that. And so that's, you know, 90 percent of the fund. Fast forward three years, if, if we're harvesting, you know, we, we might own very little uranium and we might be somewhere else. But um, for now, we think it's one of the best opportunities we've come across, which is why that's the focus of the fund right now. Mm. I really, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad, glad that 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 you correct me there because um, I love, I love that idea of it's just, it's not a specific fund, it's just a, it's a, it's a philosophy fund in the sense of this is based on what opportunities we think are the most extreme in terms of value, and we're going to go, you know, all in, so to speak, on those types of themes. Um, so that's, so that's, so, you know, that's really cool. And actually, you know, popped a question into my head of, do you think over time that that opportunity fund is going to generate uh, significant more or significantly greater returns than the standard fund? And do you think you're going to see a shift in more of your assets going into the opportunity fund than the standard one? Uh, potentially. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I, I think it's a different type of investor that's, I mean, it's very concentrated, it's much more volatile. And so I think 
it invites a certain type of investor that is comfortable uh, right. with with that characteristic. And so maybe it does. Um, you, you never know. We'll we'll see how the market plays out. Uh, a number of the the a good portion of the the recent um, flows into into our company have gone into this fund. Uh, so it just shows, I think, more at least at the outset, is interest in having something like this, which is concentrated, uh, more uncorrelated. But you never know. I mean, if the, if the overall market c continues to truck up 20 or 30 percent a year, people might just want of more course. diversified exposure. And so who knows? That, that's why we have both offerings. And I, and I think uh, the point is we also, in our diversified funds, have some exposure to these types of themes. And so exactly. they should benefit just as well. But if it is uranium that is is the big winner, then obviously the the concentrated fund will will do the best. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And I also, you know, add Brandon that this is a a time period, right, where the you know this the the, the passive active um, you know debate. It's not exactly the the easiest environment for for I, I guess a you know diversified active manager to. To, to have fund flows, you know, and although we're, we're fairly concentrated, um, you know, kind of our, our core funds should um, be a little bit more tied uh, to the overall market. Mm -hmm. um, even though I, I believe we should be able to outperform the overall market, um, you know, this, this new fund, it's, it's completely uncorrelated. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I really like it, and I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to, you know, hearing, hearing its progress and, 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 and seeing it grow. Now, in terms of the uranium play, just going back to your, uh, going back to uranium, Brian, where do you think, or where are you looking along the industry spectrum in terms of investments, and where, where, where do you think the greatest opportunity is within that specific sector? So. The, the bulk of our investments right now are in the miners, in, in the, the companies that own the resource. And, and that can be divided into a, a few different segments based on how close, whether they're producing or not, or how close they are to production. There are only a handful of producers out there that, that, you, that are publicly traded um, where you get the pure exposure. And that's because the industry has, has been so, so decimated that even the, even the large producers have been cutting back. So we, we own a number of those. We own a, a number of companies that have the very big, high-quality projects around the world. That's that's probably would be the bulk the bulk of the of the portfolio. Uh, we own a few companies that are, are a little further out there. What would be considered exploration companies, where they have attractive land packages. Maybe they've made a few a few good discoveries. Um, and so that's probably the bulk. We also have other investments down the value chain. Um, we have companies that deal with the enrichment of, uh, of the uranium, which is where they, they take the raw ore and they make it into a form that's suitable for use in the nuclear power plants. And then some other companies that deal with, with um, equipment and, and uh, you know, related sort of processing. So, but, but mainly it's the resource because that's where we think you'll get the leverage to the improvement in prices. I mean, right. we have these companies where because the price right now is, is below the cost that they need to bring their mine into production or project into production, uh, the companies are essentially trading for pennies on the dollar. And so our view is that what is this thing worth in a normalized environment? Because that's where we think it's going over the next few years. That's, that's the essential bet that we're making. Right. And a lot of these things, I mean, they're trading at maybe 
five or 10% of what that normalized value is. And so if we're right that the price gets above this so-called, I guess, quote unquote, stock uh, strike price, which is what we think is the normalized price that balances the market. Well, all of a sudden these things do act like options where they were trading for essentially this stub value pennies on the dollar. And then, mm-hmm. you know, w- once we're in a normalized environment, they're, they're, they're fully valued. And, and we think that that is the big gap that we're trying to capture. And if we're right about the fundamentals and the thesis, well, you know, the commodity is going to do incredibly. In fact, we think probably the commodity has at least 100% upside from here. But mm-hmm. the, the, the guys that own the resource in the ground and the projects that can be brought online, they have a, a multiplier on top of that. Mm. Good. No, that's good because uh, I haven't touched any uranium ideas. And, you know, miners scare me because I have a small circle of competence and they are far outside of that. They're hanging out with biotechs. And so, um, but, you know, knowing knowing that, where 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 can people, like if if they want to start with, you know, this doesn't even have to be a company that your fund is invested in, but if someone wants to get a good idea of, you know, a miner or how a, or how a, you know, good uranium miner should look, where, where should they go? Like what company should they use as their kind of, um, you know, barometer? Well, so it's really going to depend on the risk tolerance of the investor. I mean, there's a number of ways to get exposure to the sector. And I agree with you. This is not, really where a lot of typical value investors play because there's no cash flow. I mean, there's nothing really to yeah. value. So we're yeah. making the we're making the assumption that the, the fundamentals are going to drive the price and the price is going to cause the cash flow. And so there's a few, you know, orders of, uh, uh, you know, degrees of separation here. We're, we're almost mm-hmm. playing the, the second derivative of this thing because, you know, the fundamentals drive the price. The price allows the companies to produce. The produce gives the cash. And, and so there's this there's these magnifiers at every level. So, you know, unless you're comfortable with all the, the, that, that chain of thinking, then maybe you just want to go the safest route, which is essentially to play the, there are a few funds out there that, um, you know, they, they just sit on uranium in a vault. I mean, it's almost like the GLD for hmm. gold. There's one that's in Canada. It's called Uranium Participation Corp. Um, there's one uh, in London called Yellow Cake. These, they just, I mean, it's, they're essentially, you're buying, you're buying, you're getting exposure to the price rise in the commodity. And so they just sit on, they sit on material in a vault. And, and so you get exposure that way. Uh, if you want to do, go a little further and, and take some operational risks, you can go to one of the producers. The two biggest ones out there, uh, one is Kazatomprom, which is the, the big uh, producer in Kazakhstan. They're the, the largest producer in the world. One caveat is they are um, majority owned by their sovereign wealth fund, and so there are some issues with that. Are but you a shareholder by just we just are a shareholder? Disclosure. We are okay. a shareholder because Adam Prom. Um, uh, Cameco is the big Canadian producer. They they they've cut back significantly. We're a shareholder of Cameco as well. Um, and then you know th- those are are two companies that have long histories. They've they've mm-hmm. produced, and so there maybe it's easier for someone with a traditional value background to understand you know they do have a history of cash flows they do you know it's they're, they're they're fully operational once you start getting further down the spectrum now you're 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 starting to make assumptions about the, the future path of the companies because there aren't that many more that are producing out there and so you know if you're looking at what their revenues are and you're trying to do price to earnings or something i mean <laughs> they don't have earnings right but but, but exactly. our view is that they will and so we're trying to value it prospectively based on what those earnings will be when our thesis plays out and mm-hmm. so 
there's a lot more assumptions that go into that. Uh, we're comfortable with that. Not everyone is, but I think that's why the opportunity is there because a lot of people pass on this sector because they think, oh, you know, uh, these guys don't make any money. It's, it's a, you know, there's nothing there. But, you know, our, our view is, well, do you really want to buy these things once they're making money? Because we're trying exactly. to capture that, that, that value gap until they get to that point. Look, there might be a, there might be a, a lot of upside after that, and we, we may capture that as well. But our, our, the big move, we think, is them going from, hey, this, this industry is, is, is going away to, oh, my gosh, hey, no, it's actually going to do well. And, and now mm-hmm. they're going to have cash flows. And, and that's the delta that we think is going to be the first really big move. And so there's a number of, of companies. There's probably, I don't know, 20 um, that, that are on, in various parts of that risk spectrum. But um, I think for someone new to the space, uh, you, you'd probably want to start looking deeply and, and, and getting a grip around um, just the thesis itself and, and looking at, at the history of it um, because, you know, it, it can seem pretty speculative if you're just going into these companies that have zero revenue um, because if, if, you, if you don't know, if you don't see the path forward to how they get into production, um, it, it's going to be difficult to get comfortable with that investment. Yeah, and I, I, I love that where you talked about most people are going to, you know, would want to start looking at these businesses once they have earnings, once they can do a pretty simple Excel model for the DCF. But, you know, what you were talking about is perfect because it doesn't just apply. It doesn't just apply to uranium. It applies to any commodity specific or even cyclical industry where you're not going to find these types of ideas on stock screens. And if you have the ability to look out three to five years or just look out to what you estimate is a normalized condition, you can find, like you said, you can find these companies that are trading for pennies on the dollar if you do the work and if you allow yourself to be a little bit comfortable with the uncertainty of, oh, I can't put this into my five-year DCF or, oh, I can't use an EV to EBITDA multiple comparison because they don't have any of that yet. But that's so important because it applies to so many industries and sectors that can now become available to investors that wouldn't otherwise look there at, you know, the low points in those cycles. Yeah, I, would, I, would, I agree with that. I, I think cyclical is probably a good, the cyclical industries are probably a good example um, because, you know, when they teach you to value these things, you're looking at what they call mid-cycle economics. So you're not looking at the at the trough you're not looking at the peak you're saying what does this thing earn over a cycle and then are are we near the inflection point and that's why we really are attracted to this sector is we think that there are a number of catalysts on the horizon in the short mm-hmm. to medium term that cause that inflection point and are going to cause all these investors to come back into the space i think one of the things that's led to this opportunity is that the downturn has lasted so long that a lot of investors have just fled. There, there right. aren't a lot of people still looking at it. And one of the reasons is, is that it's gotten so small that a lot of investors can't look at it. I mean, mm. most of the companies yep. in the space outside of a handful are sub hundred million market cap. They're very illiquid. It's, it's difficult for any capital pools of size to participate. We think there will be this positive feedback loop where once it, once the, the, the inflection point starts, uh, you know, the valuations will rise, liquidity will increase and it'll feed upon itself. We're happy uh, to, to use that current dynamic in our favor, which is, hey, we can build positions in these things over time. The right. fundamental picture gets better every day. You know, it seems like there's good news uh, almost every day about this thing. And yet the equities have dislocated from those fundamentals. I mean, we view it like a, a, a pot of boiling water where, 
you know, the, the, the fundamentals are the fire that's just sitting under there. The water hasn't boiled yet, but you're starting to see bubbles pop to the surface. I think it's only a matter of time before this happens. I mean, we saw one of the names in our portfolio go up 50% yesterday. So I think you're starting to see this recognition that, you know, the, the, the fundamental thesis is sound. Uh, it's going to happen. All these other parts of the value chain have started to move. You know, some of these other price indicators. The only thing that hasn't moved yet is the equities. Um, and, and, and we think that, that that's next to go. And, and you're starting to see some of these things perk up. And so for us, it's a very exciting time. You know, we've had a lot of investor interest in that. More people are getting aware of the thesis. I think that it's just a, it's just a matter of time. And, and we think not a very long time. Hmm. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, Paul Revere running through saying the British are coming, the British are coming. You know, now it's like, hey, guys, the inflection is coming. The inflection is coming. We're, <laughs> we're, well, we're almost and, here. And a lot of, and people have been you know, following this for a while. Like I said, it's been an eight or nine year downturn. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think there is some skepticism in that regard because people have been trying to call this turn for, for years now. Uh, there have been reasons that we think have delayed that that weren't very well followed. I mean, certain parts of the fuel chain that were, um, you know, less understood that where there was this extra supply keeping the keeping the market oversupplied. We think that some of these price indicators that we follow that aren't very widely followed are suggesting that those sources have have been diminishing, which is why we think, you know, it, it's we're finally getting to that point where the equities can catch up to the rest of the fundamentals. And that's why we're happy to sit where we are. And we think, look, because of this investor exodus and the lack of liquidity, when you do have some interest start flowing into the space, you're going to get moves like you had yesterday where right. these tiny companies that you know used to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, now they're trading for 10 or 20 million. Well, we don't even need to get back that full way. If we get back a portion of the way, we're going to exactly. do extremely well. And, and we think we'll do well across, <coughs> across the basket of names. Yeah, 50% in one day. That's a nice early Christmas present for you guys, too. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, like I said, it, it's they're few and far between. A lot of these things are, are are still down because, you know, this the way these things work, they don't have revenue. And so they continue to kind of bleed and, and, until they finally work and people decide to value them correctly. I mean, one of the names in, in our portfolio is up 5x in the last two weeks, I think. So, you know, you're starting to see the potential of what these things can do when there is positive news, positive catalysts. Um, and we think that that fundamental outlook has never looked better, and yet the equities are still trading at, at uh, you know, bargain basement prices. And so we're very happy with our positioning. We're glad that we have this fund. We're glad that we have a, a full weighting in the rest of our funds. Mm -hmm. um, and for us, it's just a matter of the rest of the investor universe understanding this thesis. These catalysts continue to play out, and then we get to close that, that value gap, and, and, and then you know, that's, that's how we do it. I've got two more questions for you regarding uranium and you know the the bull case which you've laid out you know very well and you know very very simply it comes down to supply and demand like you said let's take a pre-mortem look at this thing what what could go wrong or what what needs to go wrong for your thesis to fall apart I think because it's a supply demand thesis, it's going to either be something on the supply side or something on the demand side. I mean, that sounds simplistic, but if it was a supply side, it would be some sort of, you know, supply, positive supply shock where all of a sudden this new supply is, is available. We don't think 
that is is very likely at all. I think if something's going to derail this thesis, it's going to come from the demand side, which is, uh, you know, does the demand that we foresee go away? Do these reactors that are being built, do they stop building them? Do the reactors that are currently operating, do they shut them down? Is there another event like what happened in Japan where all of a sudden, you know, there's uh, a, a big outpouring of, of negativity towards the sector? I think really the, the main thing that can derail this thesis is some sort of demand shock where all of a sudden people say, we don't want nuclear power and and we're going to shut the ones that we have down and so mm -hmm. you know our our view is that if you follow the news that's come out even in the last several months the demand picture seems to get stronger by day i mean you right. know, the u.s has been announcing reactor um you know the life extensions in, in europe you're starting to see countries that had said they wanted to to, to scale back um you know extending those timelines on, on when they do that Germany has said that it was a mistake, that they got rid of their nuclear power. And so I think all, we, we're constantly on the lookout for what can can bust this thesis. I mean, so we're right. always looking for the negative news, um, what's going on. And yet it seems that all the news that we've found is, is by and large positive. And so that's why it gets us excited that and our conviction grows that really the, the thesis gets stronger every day, but the equities, there's this lag. And I think it just has to do with Inertia. I mean, the fact that the sector has been, has lagged for so long. I mean, to use the that boiling water metaphor, it's like you're trying to boil ice water because everyone's hated this thing for so long. But you're finally starting to see, you know, the continued fundamental setup play through. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess if I had to if I had to think of a bear thesis, it would be something on the demand side. And so, look, if there was another Fukushima, hey, that, that's probably going to derail it. It would depend where it happens, what the what the response is. But you know, there's a lot of people that are anti-nuclear. They're changing because they they, mm -hmm. they do realize that that it is a good way to solve the the emissions problem if everyone's so concerned about CO2. But right. you know, give them some fuel for the fire. If there was another incident, I think that would m maybe really sour the um, the outlook for the industry. Fantastic. This has been a great conversation with both of you guys. We've you know we've we've covered a lot um you know we're, we're we're coming up on kind of the end of end of end of end of the episode here i know it's you know christmas eve you guys probably have to go you know maybe you're not like me and maybe you do have all your christmas shopping done uh i finished mine up this morning uh on etsy so unfortunately it's not even going to get here in time which is going to be a bummer so i'm gonna have to figure out a way to get myself out of that situation but with that being said Normally, I ask kind of one question at the end that is, you know, kind of kind of interesting, kind of kind of thought provoking. But we're in a Christmas theme here. And so I'm going to ask two questions. The first one, and both of you can answer, obviously, is what's the weirdest <clears throat> gift that you've received from somebody? And then the second question is, if you could have dinner with one person past or past or present, who would it be and why? I'll let you take that first, Brian. Oh, Joe, I was going to, you know, in the spirit of Christmas, <laughs> I'll let you go first. <laughs> oh, man, I, I, I don't know. I, I Weird gift. I think all, all, all of my gifts have been pretty, pretty normal. I'm a kind of a conventional guy, so I can't give you a good answer for that. Um, you know, in, ter in terms of one dinner, one person, past or present, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe John Malone, hmm. you know, I, 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 uh, yeah, I'm just a, a enamored by, you know, what he's built and, and, you know, I, I didn't really 
talk about much of the media investments that we own, but I've spent a fair amount of time, you know, looking in media. One of the Howard Jonas companies that he spun off, where we're a large shareholder, is a media company, and and uh, you know Howard's kind of made a knack there. But 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 John Malone is is you know is the king of media, and right. and actually Howard's first media business he sold to John Malone, so probably John Malone. Okay, yeah, that's 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 the second. Andrew Walker of uh, Rangeley Capital said said John Malone as well, and I know he's I know he's a big fan. So we got two for two for John Malone. All right, Brian, it's all you. Uh, so I, for gift, I, I I don't know any. I can't think of a gift, but for for dinner, uh, I would say Nikola Tesla. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay, I like that. I like that. We had we had Thomas Edit or not Thomas Edison. Albert Einstein is one. Nikolai Tesla would actually be. Would be my guess as well. So, I I completely agree. Um, where can people go to find more about you guys specifically? Um, you know, you guys have the website Old West, uh, but if they want to reach out to you guys, whether it's on Twitter or 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 email, where can they find you? Yeah. So so, so my my Twitter uh, handle is at Boscovic, B as in boy, O S K O V I C six four, and uh, you know I I post a lot of thoughts about some of the investments that we think are interesting. Um, so yeah, so th- th- that'd be the best place to, to get a hold of me. Yeah. I'm on Twitter too. You can reach out. It's just at Brian Lax. Um, you can find info on our website. We usually post our, our letters, um, you know, and we're pretty good about answering on Twitter and, you know, feel free to write us or give us a call. We always like talking about this stuff. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to your guys' annual report. So, uh, Brian and Joe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and have a fantastic holiday. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Brandon.